Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to each of us. We thank you for the life that we experience physically and spiritually through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Spirit of God who is present here with us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you will cause our hearts and minds to be in in tune with what your Spirit is saying to each of us. We ask that the Word of God will illuminate our not only our path, but our hearts and minds. And we ask, Father, for your presence throughout this Sunday school this morning, that you will bless the, the little ones and our teenagers and adults in every venue this morning, that you will be magnified and lives will be quickened. We pray for any unsaved person who is here this morning in church or Sunday school, wherever they may be, that you will draw them to a saving relationship with yourself. We just thank you for all that you do and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're on that last little piece of a handout, about half a page, page 41. If you don't have that page and like one, just raise your hand. Norma has some copies. In the meantime, if you would turn to the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, We began the life of Moses on April 30th, 1995. You may not remember back that far. Reading at verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Well, the day of Moses' death had finally come. After, lo, these many years, 40 years, of leading Israel through the wilderness. And as I pointed out last time, I'm certain that the farewell was a very emotional one. As he parted from all of the leaders of Israel and those that had been close to him and those that had not been so close to him, and as he did not ride off into the sunset, he walked off to the opposite direction, to the east instead walking away from the plain of Moab, which is down in the bottom of the valley of the Jordan River, and began the climb up the eastern escarpment of the valley. As I've mentioned to you before, the the Jordan River is in the longest earth fracture that is on land. It's much longer than the San Andreas Fault. It's much more significant than the San Andreas Fault. It begins in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon and goes all the way down through the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, goes down through the Arabah, through the Gulf of Aqaba, and goes into Africa. 
goes through central Ethiopia, then down through uh, Lake Victoria, and goes out approximately at the mouth of the Zambezi River. And it creates what is known as the Great East African Rift. And over there you find volcan volcanoes and escarpments, you find Lake Victoria, you find Lake Tanganyika, Lake Nyasa, all of these are part of that same fault zone in which you discover the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, and the Sea of Galilee to be in today. And so it was quite a, quite a, what they call, as I mentioned to you before, in German, it's the word Graben, is used officially in geology for this kind of a fault zone. Of course, in, Gra in German, the word Graben means grave. Anyway, it's this downfaulted area. And so he's climbing up the east side of this escarpment to the top of Mount Nebo. And there God gave him, as we noted at the end of class last time, this panoramic view of the land of Canaan from Mount Hermon in the north to the Negev in the south, and even out into the Mediterranean on the far side of the land. I mentioned that Canaan is a very unusual piece of property. The land of Canaan has played a major role throughout the course of history. In fact, it's been probably the most fought over piece of property on the surface of this planet. Because as I mentioned to you last time at the end of class, armies from dozens of nations have crossed this land and have fought in this land <laughs> and have died on this little piece of property. A piece of property today uh, which according to the definition that's given in here, probably wouldn't exceed 12,000 square miles, which would fit into San Bernardino County with 8,000 square miles left over. So you get an idea of how small of a territory we're talking about here. It is located at the crossroads of the world. It's at the place where Europe and Asia and Africa come together. And you would be hard-pressed to find another place in the world where armies from those three continents have fought as frequently or as intensely. Armies from Europe and armies from Asia and literally armies from Africa have crossed that land and fought on that land. And of course we know the most recent fighting having been the fighting that has taken place since 1948 in the several episodes in 56, 67, 73, and 84 that have 80, 82, which have followed along. It is a piece of property which is sacred to the three great religions of the world, Mohammedanism, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. The word holy land, which is often used, of course, is a word used primarily coming out of the Catholic and Orthodox understanding of the land and, and uh, all that's related to it. It is called the promised land as far as the Old Testament scriptures are concerned. Did God give to Moses while he stood on the top of Mount Nebo, did he give him a vision of the future greatness of Israel? Could he have told Moses that one day the great kingdom of David and Solomon would stretch beyond what he could actually see there from the top of Mount Nebo, uh, a point of it actually arriving at the Euphrates River? I, I, we don't know. It doesn't say whether he did that. But as far as we know, the very last words that Moses heard from God are those found in verse 4, where he says, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. After those words and this grand view of the promised land, God took Moses' soul to his eternal 
promised land. In verse 6, we discover that God himself was responsible for the burial of Moses' body. Why? So that no man would know where he was buried. If Israel had known where Moses was buried, they certainly would have made it a place of veneration, a sacred site. And to understand that, all you have to do is go to Israel today. And although when you go through the land of Israel today, you find most of the sites are demarked by the existence of a church sitting on top of it. Not a, a Hebrew monument, but a church. And of course, most of those churches were originally built in the life of Constantine the Great when his mother went over to the land, looked up the, the local geographer who would know about uh, the sites of the Old Testament and life of Jesus. And then wherever he said, this is where Jesus did this and this is where Abraham did that, she ordered a church to be built with Constantine footing the bill from the royal treasuries. And so most of these sites today have churches sitting on them. But in the city of Hebron, if you go to the city of Hebron today, you'll discover that there is a very large structure standing there in the middle of the town. It's a structure whose construction is largely Herodian, that is from the time of Herod the Great. But it is built on the cave of Machpelah. It's built on the grave of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's a place sacred to Jew and Muslim alike. So we could understand if they have done this for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what would they do for Moses? What is interesting is that in the fourth century, this same effort to plant a church wherever resulted in a Byzantine church being built on what they thought was Mount Nebo. They couldn't find the grave of Moses, but they built the church on the top of the mountain that they decided must have been Mount Nebo in honor of Moses. So this is tradition. This is what people like to do. And so God placed Moses in an unmarked grave. We're told in verse 6 that he was buried in the valley of Moab opposite Beth Peor. Beth Peor was a small Moabite town that is thought to have been located about four miles west of the summit of Mount Nebo. And so probably in a ravine opposite that village, God interred, or as we'll see in a minute, had his angel Michael intour Moses into the ground there where no man could find his body or the spot either. Verse 7 of this passage makes it clear that Moses didn't just keel over from old age, nor did he die of a heart attack from having climbed a 4,000-foot mountain. He was 120. Yeah, that's older than most of us probably hope to live to be. But we discover that at 120, God could show him the whole promised land and he could see it. He could see Mount Hermon up in the north with its snows, and he could see the Negev in the south, and he could see the Mediterranean out there to the west. If I lived to be 120, I'd probably be lucky to see the hand in front of my face, you know. <laughs> and yet Moses could see this vast territory. The statement that his vigor was not abated must be understood, I think, in light of his age. It doesn't mean he was still a teenager in vigor. In Deuteronomy 31, uh, we read a few Sundays back that when Moses was explaining to Israel why he was not going to be able to go into Canaan with them, one of the explanations was that I am 120 years old and I am no longer able to come and to go. What he meant by that, of course, was in a military sense. 
This is to un be understood that he was no longer able to lead Israel in battle as he used to be able to do. He was not the warrior he was when he was younger. That's what he meant. He didn't mean he couldn't get around because he just finished climbing a 4,000-foot mountain, which is hard to do with a cane or, you know, some other aid of that sort. So I think the statement in Deuteronomy 34, 7 means that he didn't just die of old age. It was obvious that he was still a vigorous man if he could climb a mountain such as he climbed and stand there and look at the vision that God gave him and to glory in the presence of the Lord. Moses is gone from the earth. His body is interred and his spirit is in heaven. And for 30 days, we're told in this passage, Israel mourned for Moses, their great leader. Now, there were undoubtedly mixed thoughts concerning Moses. There were those who felt he had been a strict and uncompromising leader. But in spite of this, there were many who certainly loved the man and virtually all respected the man. He was no Roger Dangerfield. He got respect. He got respect because the power of God was upon him. And not only was the power of God upon him, it was demonstrated through him. You had to respect the man Moses. And so his, his, his absence caused many to be concerned. He was a godly man without peer. Many were certainly a bit frightful of their future without the presence of Moses. What will we do now without Moses? Moses had walked them through literally the desert, spiritually and physically. For many, Moses was the only leader they had, they had ever known. They had been born in the wilderness. They were raised under Moses' tutelage, and here he was, their spiritual father. And now he's gone. What, oh, what will we do, you know? And, you know, that's one of the reasons why God took him, really, ultimately, was that the people would see beyond the strong human leader they had to the real source of their strength, of their power, of their hope, of their future, of their redemption, which was God, not Moses. Moses was merely a man, and the people needed to recognize that. God gave Joshua strength and wisdom to lead Israel. But God's point in this was for them also to see that Joshua was merely a man. He, yes, would be their leader, but it was God who was ultimately their leader and God who was their savior, an almighty God. That was very, very important for the people of Israel to understand. Now, getting to Robert's question, let me read a verse from the ninth verse, well, Jude 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, there are those, of course, within the liberal community who will tell us that Jude is just simply repeating a legend. This is in the inspired word of God. It is not a legend. Wherever Jude got the information, it was put in Scripture because it was the divinely inspired word of God. <coughs> Michael, the archangel, has been given the responsibility for the actual burial of the body of Moses. God is ultimately responsible if the person or the one who actually carried it out 
dug the hole in the ground or whatever, whatever had to happen here was the archangel Michael. And what is interesting here is that Satan comes up and challenges him for the body. Satan wants the body of Moses. Now why? It, it's not explained why, Moses won, uh, why, why Satan won the body of Moses, but you can be sure of this. Whatever was the reason, it wasn't good. Everything Satan gets a hold of, he twists. And certainly this would have been the truth. Had he been able to get a hold of the body of Moses, he would have seen to it that Israel would have known where this man was buried so that Israel could build a monument to Moses and venerate the, the tradition and the life of this man, Moses. Satan wants to twist the truth so that you and I will believe and worship that which is less than God himself. And he has been immensely successful in that. If you are, certainly you are aware of the fact that two of the largest, quote, Christian communions place great emphasis upon veneration of saints and relics and objects of various kinds. And there are places where you go and you pray to the saints and you want this saint to do this thing for you and do that thing for you and to, for the saint to intercede with the Virgin Mary so that she'll intercede with Jesus. I think it's very, very important for us to remember the lives of godly men and women. I think we in the evangelical tradition are guilty of making too little of that. I think that largely within evangelical tradition, we have forgotten church history. In some ways, it's probably a, a reaction to uh, too much veneration and making to do of the saints. But to throw out the baby, baby with the bathwater, I don't think is a good thing. I think it's important for us to know about the great saints of the past, your Augustines and your Nicholases and uh, the, the various ones that have lived down through time, not only Luther and Calvin and Swingley and, and those, but others which are subsumed within the Catholic fold, but if you look at their lives, they're not, quote, Catholic in the sense that we think of them today. But that being said, to venerate the bones of a saint or his birthplace, or his place of death, is heretical. To honor the wafer that is going to be used in communion and parade it around and make it as if it's some kind of an object that will, will miraculously do things for you is not scriptural. But it is practiced. Why? I think simply because many have not seen how Satan has slowly twisted things so that people's focus is not specifically on Jesus, but is scattered through all these other objects and all these other persons down through the pages of history. As I've mentioned to you before, in a different time, we have a neighbor who is uh, Roman Catholic and she was talking to Lois once and uh, said that she'd lost something. And uh, when she loses something, she always prays to Saint Anthony because Saint Anthony is the saint of lost things. And she said, we've lost so many things and talked to him so much that we call him Tony now. <laughs> because we're on an intimate basis with Tony. There's absolutely no biblical basis for the veneration of any object or person or place. None whatsoever. And there is definitely no scripture for any other mediator 
except Jesus Christ. Because if you read in 1 Timothy 2.15, we're told that there is one God and one mediator between God, the man Christ, man, between man and God, and that's the man Christ Jesus. One! You don't have to go to Saint so-and-so so he'll intercede with Mary so that she'll intercede with Jesus. This is Satan's lie to get people's eyes off the source of their salvation, their redemption, and their hope. And to put it in a system. The fact that veneration can happen is found even as you read in Scripture. In 2 Kings 18 we read that Hezekiah, the great king of Israel, of Judah, destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness because that bronze serpent had become an object of veneration. And the Israelites were going and worshiping the bronze serpent. And Hezekiah saw that it was detracting from the worship of God himself. And so he destroyed this relic that had been around for 800 years. Can you imagine today what would happen if you destroyed an artifact that went back hundreds of years? I mean, he'd probably be imprisoned or something, you know, for destroying such a thing. But Hezekiah did. Satan wanted Moses' body. But Michael was not about to let him have it. I, wouldn't that have been an interesting confrontation to watch? If you could have had a spiritual video here <laughs> watching these two, you know, Satan hissing away, you know, probably didn't, but, you know, talking to uh, Michael there and intimidating, threatening him, because you remember, Satan was the, had been the cherubim that covered he was more powerful in the kingdom of heaven than Michael the archangel. And that's why I think we find the response here, how Michael dealt with Satan. Michael didn't say, get out of here, buddy, or I kick your backside here. <laughs> you know, a lot of Christians are real flippant in their dealing with the enemy. And I don't think that's biblical. Because look how he did dealt with him. He said, the scripture says, he did not dare pronounce a railing judgment against him. Here, the archangel Michael did not dare to just badmouth Satan. Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. And I think that's where our power is. We call upon the name of the Lord to bind the evil one. We call in the name of the Lord to rebuke the evil one. We'll try to redo it in our own strength, because not even Michael, the archangel, could do that. Let's look at the last verses of Deuteronomy 34. Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for the mighty power and for the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Joshua had a major task before him. He was to lead Israel into the promised land and to direct them in the conquest of this land for the nation of Israel. And in order for this to happen, he was given wisdom because we're told that the spirit, if you will, the Holy Spirit of wisdom came upon him. The Spirit of God filled him for the purpose of giving him wisdom. And he was going to need supernatural wisdom in order to lead this recalcitrant group of people. Just as Moses had needed such wisdom and had been the recipient of divine grace. Knowledge is wonderful. 
Knowledge is something we should seek after, but knowledge in and of itself is inadequate. The application of knowledge correctly in every situation is the result of wisdom. We should seek knowledge and pray for wisdom. Because, as you and I know, this world is filled with knowledgeable fools. People who cannot even order their own lives, let alone lead anybody else with wisdom. I've mentioned this before, but it, it just seems like such a contrast to me to see a university which has the words over its entrance and the truth shall set you free and to walk within the doors of that university and know that there are many wise fools in there trying to teach people anything but God, anything but the truth, denying the truth, in fact, and calling it wisdom. Such folly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. People listened to Joshua because God gave them ears to hear, and the people obeyed the commands that God had given through Moses. Surprise, surprise, huh? That's what we're told in the Scripture. Now, Joshua had been publicly commissioned by Moses. Moses had put his hands on Joshua and literally transferred the mantle of leadership to this man under the ordination of God. Moses had, actually Moses had not selected Joshua to be his, quote, right-hand man. That was God's doing, and we see that when you go all the way back to, to the time when they stood there about ready to go into the land the first time. And the spies came back, and Joshua, of course, had been one of the spies. And ten of them said, there's no way we can go into this land. And Joshua and Caleb stood there and said, yes, there are giants, yes, there are strong walls, but the Lord will give it to us, we can do it. And Joshua at that moment proclaimed who his God was. And he would, upon his death, or, or the nearing of his death, say the same thing. He would say, choose you this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he had proclaimed that, probably by the time we're talking about, you know, at least 50 years before, as he stood there before the land of Canaan as one of only two spies who felt that God would give them the land. He alone. Think about it. All of Israel. I mean, they were to put a mark on the mountain of Sinai when God was up there giving Moses the uh, Ten Commandments, they were to put a mark on the mountain of Sinai and nobody and no thing was to cross that mark or it would die. Where was Joshua? Halfway up the mountain. The only one allowed on the mountain with Moses was Joshua. Thus, the choice of Joshua to replace Moses was both logical and expected and obviously ordained by God. There's nothing more wonderful than seeing clearly the hand of God in the transfer of the mantle of leadership within God's people. The last three verses of Deuteronomy 34 are a beautiful eulogy for the man Moses. We're told that Moses was the greatest of all God's prophets, greater than Samuel, Greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha, greater than Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. You think of these, this, this long list of great prophets, and Moses was greater as a prophet than they. He had known God more intimately than anyone else, 
In fact, literally we're told in, in, the, in the scripture that he knew God face to face. Let me just remind us of those statements in scripture. Exodus 33, we read these words in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Can you imagine that? Talking with God just as you and I can speak to each other right this day, face to face, as it were. And then in the 34th chapter of Exodus, in verse 29, we read, And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, Yahweh. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And then in Numbers chapter 12, we read these words in verse 6. This is when Miriam and, and Aaron had dared to challenge the authority of Moses, and God says to them, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? No place in Scripture is anyone held in that kind of esteem save the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God performed mighty signs and wonders through the man Moses. No greater signs and wonders were ever performed by anyone else. Who else was responsible through God's empowerment to destroy a nation as Moses destroyed Egypt? Who else could stand there and say, be still and know the Lord and hold out his staff and a sea opens? so a nation could pass through on dry ground. No prophet ever did anything that even compared to what God did through Moses. We see, of course, insight into the character of the man Moses as we read the Hall of Fame of Great Saints in he Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read the words again uh, concerning Moses here. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's, king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned." You and I might view Moses as somewhat of a reluctant prophet when he stood before the burning bush and he said, Lord, choose someone else. I, 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 I can't speak too well, you know. But it's interesting here, God does not make that disclaimer. 
God does not in this passage in Hebrews 11 say, well, Moses was a man of faith except when he was kind of chickening out there before the burning bush. No, he credits him with faith virtually from his birth. As a man of faith who walked in faith. And, I mean, think about that. This, this should be great encouragement for us. Not an excuse, but an encouragement. You and I know that as we walk through the course of a day, we fail. And sometimes we can fail in the same area we failed before, and after a while we start to beat ourselves in the head and say, what's the matter? And yet, in it all, we come back to him as Jesus said to Peter, don't just forgive seven times, but seven times, 70 times, or ad infinitum, even as I do you, Peter. And we can go back and know that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb and walk on with him. And God looks upon us as people of faith. God looks upon us as faithful people. Because he looked on Moses that way. And we know Moses failed. I mean, that's one of the reasons he didn't get to go into the land of Canaan, because he had failed God there in the wilderness. And yet God paints it all in faith. Moses' name shows up nearly 800 times in the Old Testament. 800 times Moses, Moses, Moses. 65 times in the New Testament. And one great, glorious capstone to the life of Moses is seen in Matthew. Yes, Moses is in Matthew. Chapter 17. Moses was given the grand privilege of laying eyes upon Messiah. Beginning with verse 1 of Matthew 17. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Yeah, veneration, right? It's a natural human response. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them. And he said, Arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Moses had been a lens through which the people saw Jesus. Elijah likewise. And yet when it's all said and done, we are to see Jesus alone. Not another man, not another woman, not another thing, not another relic, but Jesus alone. What greater testimony is there to the greatness of the man Moses? And of course that greatness was totally in God himself than to be given the honor of standing on top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus 2,000 years ago, 1,400 years after he had died and passed into heaven. Most of you know that uh, my wife and I are going to be leaving Saturday. We're going to Turkey and we're going to Greece. We're doing a sort of in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul type journey. 
First Sunday we'll be back. We will, at that point, begin the life of Joshua, moving straight into the next book. But it's a powerful book of Scripture dealing with the conquest of the land and how God used this great man, Joshua, to accomplish his purposes. In case you're not familiar with uh, Turkey or, or Greece, if you were to go due east from Reading, right here from where we're sitting, go due east and stay right smack at the same distance north and south, I mean on exactly this latitude, go all the way over there, you'd almost end up in Istanbul. The northern border of Turkey and Greece is basically the northern border of California. California-Oregon border is the northern border basically of both those countries. And Turkey stretches about as far south as Monterey, California. In fact, I was looking at the map. Turkey is a country of 300,000 square miles, so it's a pretty good-sized country. But basically, put it on, on the map of the west coast of the United States, it would, it would cover from Eureka on the coast, the Oregon border, to Monterey, and it would stretch over to the eastern border of Colorado. And it would cover all of, almost all of Nevada, except the little point down there, all of Utah, all of Colorado, and the southern part of Wyoming. So it's a good-sized piece of property. It's almost 1,100 miles. It's a little over 1,100 miles from the western border to the eastern border of the country. So it's a, it's a good-sized country. Greece is a lot smaller, of course. It's only about the size of the state of Arkansas. But, of course, it's a, it's a land of tremendous history, both biblical as well as, of course, pre-biblical history. We will spend a little bit of our time in Galatia. Galatia was a province in central Turkey. What is central Turkey today? Anatolia then, which was a Roman province. And of course that's the, the venue within which um, the book of Galatians was written because Paul on all three of his missionary journeys went through Galatia. And he went to the cities of Antioch in Pisidia and Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, all of which are Galatian cities. And he ministered there to these people. And then of course uh, the letter of Galatians was written in response to all of that. And what many people don't realize is that the people who lived there were distant cousins of some of your ancestors, maybe, if you happen to come from Ireland or Scotland or England or France or Switzerland or one of those places, because the Celts, as the Greeks called them, the Keltoi, uh, lived all the way from Ireland to central Anatolia. There was a belt of these people called the Celts who lived between the Germans who lived to the north and the Romans and the Greeks who lived to the south. And this belt of people all across there were referred to the Romans as Gauls. Romans called them Gauls. And so the province is called Galatia. So the people who lived there were not the people who live there today. They were not the people who lived there before because the Hittites had lived there before, the Frisians after them, and then in the third century, the Celts moved into that area. And it is to these Celts, or at least to cities within the land that they were allowed to control, that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians.